I don't think you have to be persecuted before you're asking yourself how the church's existence is both blessing and challenging the assumptions of the city around you. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Have you ever been in a situation where you go to help someone to offer encouragement? I mean, they might be down, they might have faced some really difficult situation, and you want to go and offer comfort, but you went away finding that they ministered to you more than you ministered to them. I think we've all experienced that at one time or another. And really, that's how I've come to view the Chinese church. Last week, we began a conversation with Hannah Nation. Hannah is the managing director of the Center for House Church Theology, and she's also the editor of a new book, Faithful Disobedience. Hannah helps introduce us to Pastor Wang Yi's writings. If you haven't heard of Wang Yi, then you are in for a treat. What you need to know is that he's a pastor in China who is about halfway through a nine-year prison sentence as we record this episode, and his writings are meant to encourage the Chinese church as he is in prison. You know, a lot of times we Westerners think of the church in places like China as the ones who need our support. They need our prayers. They need our resources. They need what we have to offer. At least that's what we think. And that might be true sometimes. Because we think, oh, we have freedom, we have money, we have these resources, and they don't. And that is true. They need it to some extent. But as we continue our discussion, I think we're going to see that we may need a lot more help than they do. I know you might be surprised by that. But I think in the West, we have an allergy to suffering. I think we focus on the wrong things. I'm not saying that the Chinese church loves suffering, but I I think that they are willing to embrace suffering. And while they are dealing with hostility and persecution, what we're dealing with is comfort and relaxation. We're dealing with Netflix and iPhones. Now, I'm not saying that our pleasures are bad, but I think that our pleasures can actually numb us and keep us distracted from doing what God calls us to do, and that's be his church where we are. The church in China, for all of its suffering, has a lot to teach us in the West. It's really a thought-provoking, challenging conversation. And if you haven't listened to part one, please go back and listen to that now. And we can even have conversations like this because of people like you. You are a person who has a holy discontent with the status quo. You want to grow. You long to see God's kingdom exhibited in this world and God's church renewed, and so do we. And we need to be able to partner together to really water the world for Jesus because there are too many people that are withering on the vine and are desperately in need of nourishment. And we want to be able to give that to them. And that can happen because of you. Because of your generosity, we can water souls around the world. 
If you haven't partnered with us yet, please go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, and you will be glad to know that you have made a difference in lives around the world. Now, let's get to Henna Nation. Happy listening. I know of many churches, many house churches in China who, when persecution increased in 2018, when all of the difficulty of like COVID zero has unfolded across China, their response has been to lean into church planting. You know, think about how many churches and church plants we saw fold in the pandemic. I I know many churches, you know, I, I have a, a personal friend. He's uh, he came to the U.S. for seminary. He went back right before COVID broke out. And his church plant was supposed to launch the week of the Wuhan lockdown. And he didn't know, you know, what to do. They abided by all local restrictions and policies. And a year later on their one year anniversary, they had a hundred people in their church and they baptized 10, <laughs> you know? And I think that's just where I feel like our, under, our, our understanding of how the gospel moves is so small in the U S you know, like we, we limit our understanding of how the gospel grows and how it moves by saying that it has to have openness and it has to have money and it has to have material success in order to be able to say that the gospel is, is free to grow, you know, but like the Chinese that, that I, I know, like they feel like it's, it's the opposite, (laughs) you know, like pressure is what causes the church to, to go out and to serve in their city and to meet actual needs and to preach the gospel. And he, he talks about that. He says, you're a group of master ballet dancers performing at a landfill. And he quotes the whole Joshua Bell story, which I remember when that came out, I, I remember using, using that story. I actually just used it where I was speaking the other day, but he says this statement. He says, however, this is part of the meaning of the landfill. For God has allowed them to be ambitious because he wants to magnify the value of faith. In general, the more terrible the performance environment, the greater the eschatological meaning of the church's show. So he's basically saying is the the more worse, the better, the the worse, the more the environment is, the more that important it is of how we live. This is the part that I'm trying to figure out, though, for the West. We're not suffering the hard and fast persecution by the government. Not in that overt way where people are being put in prison for going to church. I mean, I know people said, hey, we're meeting as COVID and that's what we're doing. That That's different. They're, they're not banning you for religious reasons. They were banning you for health reasons. It's a totally different expression. And, and, and I know people can debate that all day long, but people are meeting now. You know what I mean? Their, their restriction, because I, I actually had someone tell me, they're like, is, am I being, is my religious rights being uh, uh, you know, taken away. And I'm like, you're still able to worship. They just want you to wear a mask. It was a general health concern. Again, I'm not trying to get into, I actually think that has a whole different connotation of why people freaked out about the masks with, uh, we do a lot with neurotheology on here. And uh, there's a lot of conversations about that in reading the facial expressions on feeling part of a community. Mm, and I think that's mm, a bigger, mm, bigger issue mm. at their play. But 
talking about this is made me wonder there was an article that just came out the other day. They were talking about, again, another another article highlighting the mass exodus of younger people from Christianity. And they're talking about secularization. And and I, I know everybody's trying to identify why. And we're, that's part of what we do is we're saying that secularization is actually a part of it, but the church doesn't address it because it's individualized it and privatized it and made it much more of a self-help idea rather than the understanding of who Christ is and what it means to be a part of his kingdom. How do we, though, do you think, and what you know of what's going on in the Chinese church, I mean, what principles do you hope are transferred over for the church to wake up to in the West because of this, because of what he's writing, because of what the church is standing for? I mean, hope comes from this. How long do you have? How long do you have? (laughs) We got all day. We got all day. That's why we're here. Well, There are two kind of really big things that I think about. Uh, The first is that I think, you know, we need to have a reframing of our concept of what the good Christian life is, you know, and our understanding of, of what we are pursuing when we call ourselves disciples of Christ. And one of the things that, the pastors that I work with talk about, and it's, I mean, it's still deeply challenging for me. I would just like everything in me as a comfortable middle-class American would react against it when I first heard them talking about it, you know, is that they talk about the Christian life as being one of inevitable suffering, that being a disciple of Christ, you will face suffering in your life because Christ himself suffered and you mean in China, anywhere, or are you talking about anywhere? Here? Oh, okay. yeah. Okay, because okay. Christ is our master and the servant doesn't, you know, rise above the master and his life right. on this earth was marked by suffering. And therefore we anticipate that we also will live a life that involves suffering. And I think for me, when I first was hearing them say this, it just is like, well, I don't suffer, (laughs) you know, like, am I therefore not a disciple? But the more I've thought about this, the more I think actually what this shows me is how weak my understanding of suffering is and how weak my understanding of suffering as part of my discipleship is. And I think that Americans are allergic to suffering. (laughs) That's going as a clip on YouTube, Hannah. That's it right there. We are deeply allergic to talking about it. We're deeply allergic to experiencing it. And it's made our theology of it incredibly weak. And, And I think the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized, you know, it doesn't have to be persecution for me to say that I'm participating in Christ's suffering, you know, Americans have lots of experiences of suffering. (laughs) You know, when I look at my friends, I'm in my late thirties and we're now all getting to the point where we've all experienced some form of significant suffering, whether it's physical suffering, whether it's relational suffering, whether it's suffering at the hands of problematic churches, (laughs) whether it's suffering Mm -hmm. from conflict, whether it's suffering, you know, there's go, you could go on with the list, whether it's sometimes discipleship itself feels like suffering, you know, sometimes 
sometimes the call to put sins to death in our life requires of us a willingness to suffer, you know, but I think a lot of Americans, and and I say this because I see it in myself, we have a lot of ways in American life to try to dull the effects of suffering or to distract ourselves from it, you know, and that's not to glorify suffering. And it's not to say that um, we should seek it out or, you know, go out and kind of, you know, try to be these like self martyrs, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it does mean that I think we need to let the global church, which often is a much more acquainted and willing to talk about the realities of suffering. We need to let them disciple us in these issues, you know, and we need to let them be the older brother or older sister in our lives. And we need to hear what they have to tell us about what following Christ requires of us in our lives, you know, and what that will cost us, (laughs) you know, if there's no concept of following Jesus costing you anything, I think you have to to question what following Jesus means in in your life, you know, because I don't, scripturally, I don't think it doesn't cost something, you know? So I, I think that, you know, that's one of the really big takeaways I think the second thing is just this question of, you know, do we really believe that the church is the best gift we can give to the city? You know, do we really believe that the church is what our cities need? And is, do we really believe that it's worth it's worth the pain <laughs> um, to give that to our cities. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's so much, there's a lot that I could keep going on and on about reg- with regards to what we have to learn from our Chinese brothers and sisters. But I think in general, just the ways that they challenge, I think, our American idea that you can be a disciple of Christ and pursue comfort <laughs> and expect your life to have have no discomfort in it <laughs> is is um something we need to hear from them you know and and you can you can take that down to the personal level and i think you can blow that up to the big kind of church level too you mentioned bonhoeffer earlier but you know the cost of following Jesus, how much is that actually apparent in our lives? We got to ask that about the church too, you know, like are our churches primarily like is the goal of our churches in America to just be self self-sustaining and, and maintain the status quo and, you know, have your nice, your nice Sunday service. And, and that's the goal. Or are we really, you know, as a community living sacrificially, and, you know, going to wherever <laughs> the, uh, the call of Christ takes us, you know, I, th- I don't think you have to be persecuted before you're asking yourself how the church's existence is both blessing and challenging the assumptions of the city around you. You, you don't have to wait for persecution to ask that question. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. 
At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. He mentions this part on page like 186 where he says, Eventually, all your actions are subject to God's final judgment. This has led the church today to continually psychologize the gospel and reduce the meaning of salvation to the healing of the heart. Now, right there, I can tell you most Westerners are like, wait, what? Wait, what, do you, what else is it for? Because, But then he brings it out. He said, it's, it's very difficult for us to preach the gospel of the, quote, the one eternal power, end quote. On Christmas Eve, when we remember the birth of Jesus Christ, we can hardly even proclaim Behold, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Isaiah 9, 6, something that Westerners don't know what to do with. They kind of just skip over it because we don't know uh, we don't know exactly how the government is going to be. We can see that at the end of time, but I, I, he mentions elsewhere in the book, and I can't remember where it is right now, and I, I've written down a lot of his quotes, but he mentions basically that and going back to the quote I mentioned earlier, the more darker that is, the more important our role is. I think, though, in the West, it doesn't feel dark. It's hard to feel dark when you've got your nice two cars, kids are in school and in all the athletic pursuits and you're in church on Sunday. And again, I'm not saying that we have to go out and seek for persecution. I just don't know if we see the depth of the reality of what the gospel costs to people in other cultures, although our culture is shifting very quickly. And I think that we might be become aware of, I was just going to say though, that I, I think, you know, there's, I, I think you have to ask yourself too, though, like, is, is it really any less dark here? You know, it may, it might not, oh, yeah, yeah, right. that, you know, like it, it does, might not. And that's what I mean by like, it's so easy for us to, to distract ourselves with our comfort, you know, like, like, yes, we aren't, our, our pastors are not being threatened with being put in jail. So yeah, on one level, for sure. We, we would say like, it's not dark here in the same way. At the same time, you know, how much are our two cars and our flat screen TVs and our comfortable houses just just hiding the brokenness of our reality, you know, and and just kind of putting wool over our eyes of the darkness that is here, you know, And, and I think that's what I mean by like all people are fallen, all people everywhere live in a world that is marked by suffering, there have been times and places where that gets, you know, well, I don't know. It depends on how you want to view it. 
there are times and places where that might be more redeemed or, you know, God may bless a particular place. There may be more of a presence of the church and, and it is actually brighter, you know, but I think there also are times and places where we might just be fooling ourselves, you know, like all of the glitzy things are just hiding a level of brokenness that we haven't really confronted or dealt with or confessed as the church. You know, one of the, another big theme that Wang Yi talks about in the book that I think is, is very applicable outside of China is this question of allegiance, you know, and, and who, what is your ultimate allegiance? You know, what is your ultimate love in life? You know, one way to put it is, is who's your king? you know, who rules, um, the desires of your heart. And I think this is where I think China and America are not that different from each other. In both places, materialism and material gain are really at the end of the day, what rules all of us, <laughs> you know, and those are the things we need to repent of. We have that in common with them. And, you know, all, all of these pastors, they go write their sermons on laptops in coffee shops like we do, <laughs> you know, like um, there are some things that are very different about China. There are a lot of things that are very, very similar. Just the the temptations, the, the kind of ways that Christians can be, be lulled into contentment by just the material, you know, the materialism around us. So you know, that's, that's one of the, the main ways that the uh, Chinese Communist Party has succeeded in recent decades is by the sheer material wealth that China has accumulated, you know, and so much of the bargain with their people has been, you know, you keep us in power and we'll keep you materially successful and, you know, ensure that you have a nice, stable life. And, you know, I don't, I don't, again, we're, we're not talking about, we are not living in communist China here in, you know, 21st century America. But I do also think there are places in which Americans and American Christians fall prey to a similar bargain of saying, you know, we'll keep our comforts and, you know, water down what it means to be the church. Well, I think you bring up a very fascinating point, and I'm reminded of the whole Aldous Huxley versus George Orwell, Animal Farm versus a Brave New World. In Animal Farm, or 1984, excuse me, in 1984, he imagined a big brother is watching, which we do have that, and he was deathly afraid of people banning books. And Aldous Huxley hypothesized a world where they didn't have books, not because they were banned, because they were so addicted to their pleasures that they wouldn't even be aware I think it's a bit of both in our culture today. And, and this is where globalization and secularization, I think, has crept in in ways that we didn't realize. And while we like to romanticize what's going on in the church, I was actually taken back at Wang Yi's conversation about how people keep talking about the church in China, but we're suffering in that the church is not as zealous and uh, not as as dedicated and zealous as it once was. And we need a revival here. And many, I think, Americans hear that and they go, wait, what? How could that be? You're in prison. You're suffering for your faith. But his, his thought was, is we don't have enough people that have 
lost their jobs. We don't have enough people who have been in prison. We don't have enough people that have that have lost their lives on behalf of the gospel. Oh, Lord, please let that be us. And I was sitting there going, I, I, I can guarantee you the opposite is the case here. Please don't let that mm-hmm. be us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you were, you were <laughs> something I was thinking about earlier, you were mentioning, you know, just, you know, the, the younger generations and the loss we're seeing from the church of our younger generations. And, and, and I, and, you know, they struggle with the same in China, you know, they are, they struggle to figure out how to raise the second and third generation in the faith. One of the things that I think about is, you know, <laughs> this comes down to, again, what are we saying the Christian life is about? You know, is there a cost to it? Is living the Christian life something that just means finding whatever will help you, you know, have a happy, comfortable life? Because if it is, then there are lots of other options in today's world that will tell you that it too can give you a happy, comfortable life. Or are we saying that what it means to follow Christ and be a disciple of Christ means something sacrificial, (laughs) you know, something that costs something, something that is working towards something bigger than yourself. That's not just about you, but it's about a bigger reality and something that has to do with all of time and history, (laughs) you know? And um, I, I don't in any way consider myself an expert on why the American church is losing its younger generations. But I, but I do find myself thinking we aren't giving them a real picture of what, what the faith is and what discipleship is, you know, we aren't helping them see that this is something worth, worth giving it all up for, you know, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote. I'm going to quote it because as you mentioned that I had to kind of just do a quick look on my computer. I'm writing a menu, helping write a manuscript for this other ministry. And Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of pork would do that. <laughs> said, Good man. <laughs> that's what I love about Lewis. Yeah, he just, that's just Lewis. He's like, if you want a religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's true. It's the whole this is the Bonhoeffer, the knock the fool gang, you know, the whole cost of discipleship. Yeah. What what are we willing to give up? Yeah. In order to gain or Jim Elliott. Yeah. When he he says he's no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what yeah. he cannot lose. Yeah. And so I this is what I see with it with the Chinese church. I see, especially with Wang Yi, as he's bringing that out. And he mentions this in that third part of the book. The first part of the book, I'm going to read this. The House Church Manifesto, as he walks through, why didn't, really, he's giving a history mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the, the Church of China, which was worth its weight in gold, actually. It helps everybody to understand a bit more of the background and why he gets sent to prison, because you really have this, this compromise, the synchronization that's going on. The government saying, okay, we'll give you God, but he has to be our version of God. And we'll give you the church, but it's our version of church. And we'll give you leaders, but they have to our version of leaders because the Chinese culture is the top part here. And every value has to come in underneath that. And that's where he's saying, no, there's no way. No, that's not our purpose. And then he gets into that eschatological church in the city where he talks about the, the cross. And then 20 ways that persecution is God's way to shepherd us. And I just want to read these really quick here because I, I was like, wow, I'm not going to read all of them, but where he gets into 
Like number two, our fears show us the deep-rooted servility living in our hearts. The church-state conflict is a test revealing the slavish residue living in our bodies. Wow. I mean, again, this is, he he does translate well across languages. Now there was a few times I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about right now. <laughs> Cause there's, it's like, it's like some Chinese pictures or what was like going, imagery, just a yeah, little bit. Yeah. 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 He, he says, this is how the persecution is shaping us. This is the reason why we can't submit to this because Christ is the one who's over history and anything that attempts to do it over that we're going to be simply diso faithfully disobedient. But he reiterates time and time again, Give us the freedom and we'll follow. We have no problem submitting to the government as the state. Why is it so important that we keep this distinction? He, you know, the two kingdoms idea. Why is it so important to keep that distinction in his mind? Ooh, <laughs> I wish he was here to answer that. <laughs> I know. And you don't even, you've never met him, right? You've never I, met him. I You're just met, familiar I've with him. I met him once in uh, 2016. I went and was helping interview and film uh, house church pastors and got to film or record him. We have film, but we just use the audio of him. Um, it's a call to prayer for the American church to pray for China. It's really powerful. You can find it on YouTube, but yeah. Anyway, so I've met him once. Um, man, I, so, you know, his kingdom theology as I would say, um, among the people I know who are moving into more academic scholarship of his writing, there's a little bit of a debate on, you know, is he one kingdom? Is he two kingdom? You know, is he Kyperian? Is he not? You got to have this guy that I work with come on. He's currently writing a dissertation on this very question. And I'm hoping that he'll be able to turn his dissertation into a book eventually because he could he could probably answer this question better than I can. But but I think at a basic level, you know, again, this I think what it all comes down to is the question of allegiance and the kingship of Jesus for Wang Yi. I actually don't, I mean, I think Wang Yi has read very widely in reform theology. And I am sure he has a very clear opinion on the kingdoms that he could share with us. But I would say I I would I don't feel confident with what we have in the book to really nail him down on on that whole conversation. Cause I think he's I think he my opinion is that he kind of wiggles between them <laughs> a little bit. Oh. Um, he's a little, he's, you know, some of the things you read really, you know, come across as a very, you know, Calvinistic uh, or Kuyperian kind of take on this question. And then some things you read and then you're like, this guy's an Anabaptist. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so, but sorry, this is a lot of, a lot of me, processing as I, as I talk, but, um, I, I, what I was getting to is that what is crystal clear about Wang Yi's thought is that what matters is the kingship of Jesus. And what matters is that he is very clear in his understanding that, you know, 
Christ is the king of the cosmos. You know, he is the one who ordains all authorities underneath him. As such, we are very much called to respect and to adhere to those authorities in every way, except for where they limit the church's ability to be the church. I, I, this is, again, he's not unique as a Chinese pastor on this topic, even though the he's very outspoken against the three self-church and the state church, and even though he's very vocal in his, you know, his fights <laughs> with the Communist Party, in all, in all seriousness, I would say both he, but for sure, all of the house churches across China, they're very serious about being good citizens. They, they're not trying to take an antagonistic posture towards their culture, I would say. They love being Chinese. They love China. Many of them if you talk to them, they, they're not coming at you saying like, oh, China's this horrible place. And, you know, everything that the government does is just the worst. They're actually, I would say, very, very faithful Chinese citizens. But again, the, the kind of one thing where they will, in Wang Yi's words, choose to be faithfully disobedient is this question of of the limitation of the church being able to be the church, you know, and 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 with that again, who is the king of this church? You know, who is the king of our of our world? He's incredibly unbending <laughs> on that on that issue. So he is. I mean, he he talks about though the way of the cross. That's part of his theology, and he says. He mentions the, the emergence of Chinese urban churches on 192, and he says, the, emer- the emergence of Chinese urban churches over the last decade was brought out by God in a relatively relaxed environment. Our way of the cross, our suffering of the Lord, our grasp of the situation, and our self-evaluation have not yet been seriously tested by God. Therefore, we tend to overlook corruption and fear in the midst of weakness. I, I, wow. It, 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 I, I think. Again, he has a lot of words for us to say because our churches have grown up in pretty relaxed environments. But the stresses that we have are more political within the church than persecution outside of it. I mean, we're divided over a variety of different issues. And again, partially, it's it's the fact that we haven't talked about embodiment and suffering and the importance of relationships. It's just It's been very an individualistic, just me and Jesus kind of faith. And he actually counteracts that as well. He says, no, you're part of this community and the church. What are his, his? I, I would say, what are his thoughts on it? The whole book is really about that. I can't, I can't just say <laughs> that part of it. Cause he, he, I mean, Good he talks a great to say, deal about buy the, the church. book, <laughs> buy the book, buy the book, um, buy the book. And in it though, it is. It is hard sometimes to hear and read some of it. When you start reading about how the Chinese church has there only one publishing house to publish the Bible? Do they take out passages of the scripture? They don't. Um, it's it's a pretty faithful translation and a pretty faithful, you know, publication of the of the Bible. There's always the question of you know what the future holds, but 
yeah, so far it, they, that is not something that they've done. Why is the government though so frustrated with the church that they have to make it obey? What's the fear that they're going to be westernized and these western values are going to creep in? I think it really comes I don't think it's as much about westernization. It's really about I feel like I keep saying this so if I'm repeating myself forgive me, but but allegiance, you know, it really comes down to you know, the Communist Party, you know, its primary interest is maintaining its its authority within China, you know, and, and to do that, you know, it requires the allegiance of its people to agree to it. Yeah. And to, to subscribe to it. But I think I mean, I think any system which wants to main, maintain power the way the Chinese Communist Party wants to maintain power. You can't have just kind of a, a tacit acceptance of it. You know, you have to have a continued investment in it by the people, you know. And so I think essentially, and, and I think this is why the the Communist Party has never said to its citizens, you may not believe in Jesus. Ne- there was a brief time in the 1960s and 70s during the cultural revolution where that may have been the the case. But generally speaking, there's never been a regulation on someone's private individual faith. What is a problem is something that is a corporate gathering of people that gives those people identity that might supersede the allegiance to the communist party, you know, and this is why, you know, Christians are not the only persecuted people in China, just like with Protestant Christianity and and Catholic Christianity within China, you know, all of the religions, the kind of major religions are dealing with this same issue in China. This is, you know, this is, this is what's behind, for example, the the issues with the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang, they are perceived as having an identity and, a, and an allegiance that supersedes their Chinese identity and their allegiance to the Communist Party, right? And so therefore, there is this cultural uh, pushback on them or you know, genocide taking place to bring them into submission, right? It's about submission to what is going to be the ultimate power in the country, you know? And so, and this is happening with Buddhists as well. Um, You know, this is again, what's very much behind the conflicts between the communist party and the Tibetan Buddhists, but even, you know, apart from Tibet, there are stories of, temples in China, Buddhist temples in China that had never raised the, the, um, the Chinese flag until 2018. And in 2018, they finally, for the first time in, you know, 1500 years or whatever, raised the Chinese flag and played the national anthem, you know? And so this is something that's taking place, you know, across the religious landscape in China this is also an interesting question of though, you know, as how is the Christian response difference? You, you know, how is, is the church responding to these pressures, to these demands differently from other religions within China? And, and um, you know, it's, 
And again, it, it comes down to our questions of loyalty and allegiance. And again, that's another area where I think there are applications outside of China. You know, Americans struggle, maybe not in the same ways and to the same degrees, but who could, who could look at Americans and not say that we also struggle with our identity as Americans. And it's always a temptation to put our American identity above our identity in Christ, you know, and we need to be constantly reminded of, of that struggle as well. Thankfully, that's not something that will get us, you know, put in jail, (laughs) but in our hearts, we struggle with these things. You know, we struggle with with that sense of allegiance and, and identity. This is what I love about this book is it does bring this idea of allegiance to the forefront and make it confronts you with that reality and it gets you close to a place where as a Westerner, I mean, I am questioning and I and I'm reading that question. It's interesting though that he's not writing with the at least is not that I'm aware of, with the Western church as a backdrop. I think he has it in his mind in in different parts. You can see that he has it there. But he's really writing to what he sees as the abuse by his own culture and his own government, which, which when you could, if you can take those concepts and move them over and then place them down on our own, I think there would be some massive overlap of conviction. And this is what one of the reasons why Apollos Water exists with our missiolistic approach is just bringing this idea out so people can see and fulfill the mission of God where they are with all of who they are, not realizing that the culture has shaped our faith in such a way that we can't oftentimes see the Christ of Christianity. We have an Americanized Jesus, and we need to see Jesus in, for who he is. Uh, let's talk about Wang Yi's arrest here for a moment. You you mentioned that earlier because the book kind of leads to that as the crescendo. Right at the very end, you're left with the writing and then he's arrested and then either some other leaders have their writings and they're after their arrest. Take us through that for a moment. To talk about his arrest, it's probably best to talk about the summer before he was arrested. So as I said, in early 2018, in the winter of 2018, these new religious regulations began to be put into place. Early in 2018, one of the large churches in in Beijing was shut down. It made a lot of headlines around the world. It was a, a massive event shutting down this church. In the summer of 2018, uh, so early rain every year commemorated the anniversary of the Sichuan earthquake. Basically, that summer, Wang Yi was arrested leading up to the church's uh, like memorial service, basically, that they would hold. That arrest only lasted for 48 hours, but it was a pretty good warning sign that more was coming. And I would say the whole rest of that year, Anyone who knew Wang Yi or followed Wang Yi was pretty much anticipating that a, a larger arrest or kind of more significant arrest was was going to happen and was going to come. And so, and he certainly knew that. He very much anticipated um, that he was going to be 
arrested and probably spending some significant time in jail. The fall of 2018, he wrote my declaration of faithful disobedience and um, gave it to the leadership of his church and basically said to them, if I'm held for longer than 48 hours, you know, this is my statement, release it. Um, In China, you can be held up to 48 hours on kind of a, an administrative arrest. And then if you're held beyond 48 hours, it, you know, you're going to be going through the, the whole process. So in December, he was arrested and his wife was arrested along with him. It's pretty common practice that wives also receive uh, harassment or, or some form of arrest at some point, <laughs> really mostly so that they can't speak out publicly while their husband is in trial or, or undergoing trial. Basically, over the course of the following weekend, I think it was a Friday night, if I remember correctly. I'd have to go back and look, but it, it was over the course of the, a weekend that all of the pastors and the elders for early rain were also arrested. And then it became clear that it was going to be a much, much bigger event even than that, because there were just hundreds of officers, police officers and authorities involved. And they went in early rain, as I said, was pretty large. And they actually um, had a couple of floors in an office building that they used as their space. And so they had a very large library. They had all these meeting spaces and all of their, their space was um, shut down. All of their property was confiscated. Their bank accounts were frozen and confiscated. And then over the course of the following weeks, Eventually, it, you know, they just they basically continued to arrest people and eventually roughly half of their members had been arrested in, in some shape or form. A lot of them were arrested for short periods of time and released. Some were held much longer. A lot of them were uh, sent back to their hometowns. So in, in China, you don't really have freedom of, of movement, you could say, basically you have a red, they have a registration system so that, um, it's kind of, it's kind of like a, a housing permits system where I could, I'm, I could move to New York city freely. And if, you know, I had the financial means to stay there, then I could just stay there indefinitely in China. If you're from Chengdu and you wanted to move to Beijing, you would have to officially transfer your like registration to Beijing. And you can only do that if you have a reason to do so, like a job or, you know, I don't know, whatever would give you an official reason for going there. But how this plays out is that if you move to another city without that registration being transferred, you don't have access to social services. So you can't, your kids can't go to the schools. You don't have access often to things like medical care. There are a lot of things that are, are restricted if you are living outside of your whatever your, your official registered city is. One of the things that happened with a lot of 
early rain early rains members was that anyone who was living in Chengdu uh, or, or a lot of people who were not from Chengdu originally um, were sent back to their hometowns and essentially kind of forcibly removed. Um, as a way to try to disband the church, essentially. And they're just, I mean, there were a lot of really hard things that continued to happen throughout that year. A lot of people were under essentially house arrest or a lot of people lost uh, out on their property or like landlords would kick, kick them out. A lot of people had to keep moving several times due to pressure from the authorities. So it really was an ongoing difficulty and, and, and time of suffering and persecution for the members of the church. Wang Yi's statement was released as he had wished 48 hours afterwards. And I, you know, had the privilege of, of helping with the translation to get it into English. And we shared it and yeah, it was read by a lot of people around the world. Uh, we have a very little blog and um, that had a lot of people reading it. And then it went on to be translated into many other languages as well. For a lot of people, that's when they first heard about Wang Yi. Um, a lot of people that I talked to that winter of 2018 is kind of where they they first heard about something that was going on in China or the situation of the house churches in China. And a lot of people have read his declaration of faithful disobedience. So he was sentenced to nine years in jail in December of 2019. And that is the longest jail sentence given to a house church pastor really since the early days of the existence of the house church really since the cultural revolution. So it's, it's a big deal. Um, very significant. And, um, his wife was, she was in jail for a year. She was released after, um, his sentencing. And then she has essentially been under house arrest with their teenage son since then. And so she still has very, uh, I mean, she's still, it's not even limited. She really has no contact even today with their church. The outside yeah. World. Or much, oh, yeah. Or church, much of yeah. the outside world. Yeah. So we, we don't know a whole lot about her situation. We know she's out, we know she's, you know, well, but very limited contact. What do we know? What do we know about Wang Yi? Not much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he's. This is the fourth anniversary of his arrest. So he is almost halfway through his his sentence. Yeah, it's there's not a lot of information out there about about how he's doing. You mentioned the the picture on the book. That is the only picture that is out there um, of him that actually uh, is him in his jail cell. And uh, so, you know, he, we know he seems to be in good health and, and doing okay, but that's not, there's not really a whole lot of more information beyond that. I believe his wife has visited him once, which 
was a big cause for celebration. So. How old is Wong? He is in his 40s. I'm trying to remember his birth year. I'd have to look in the book <laughs> to see what it says. Does it say that in there? Yeah. I know that there's a yes. timeline. There's a timeline that gets into um, let me find. I want to say he was maybe born in 73. Yeah, I knew it was the 70s. So so he's he's in his late 40s. Hannah, what can we take away from this? I mean, to pray, yes, but what what else can we do now besides just hearing this? Like I, I like to tell people because we're watering their faith. Like here's here's your water bottle for the week. What what's the water bottle that we can get people to sip off of? with this book? Well, the obvious ones are to pray for China. Pray for the pastors there. I always say they aren't heroes. They are normal people like you and me. I think sometimes it's tempting to make people who experience persecution into these kind of superheroes who have this like superhero faith, (laughs) you know, but but people fall all the time under under pressure, you know, and the house churches, you know, they don't have some some magic that we don't have, you know. So pray for them. They need a lot of prayer. They will anytime you ask them how we can help them, they say, pray for us. They are much more faithful and diligent in prayer than we are by leaps and bounds. So it's a privilege to pray for them. They pray for us. (laughs) So we need to remember them in prayer. But I I think the kind of, I would say, if I was going to give someone just like the question to, to mull on for the week, it's really this question of, you know, where is your highest allegiance? What is your highest love in this life? And, and what is keeping that from being Jesus? You know, like what in your life is keeping you f- from uh, giving your highest allegiance to Christ? You know, that's something everyone has to ask themselves, you know, and something that um, I think Americans need to reflect on and need to let the Holy Spirit convict us on, you know, and, and, you know, the follow-up to that is, you know, if Christ is your King, you know, what do you need to be afraid of? (laughs) There's nothing to be afraid of, you know, like, I think that's the main thing that I always feel really convicted of when I'm, you know, talking with these guys, it's just like, they're not fearless because they're amazing people. (laughs) Like they're fearless because they really have a deep understanding of the fact that they're in Jesus's kingdom and, and they have nothing to fear because of that. You know, that is what gives them courage. It what it's what gives them, I think, a posture of repentance. That's something we didn't even talk about, but <laughs> they, they mm-hmm. uh, imbibe such a posture of, of repentance. And I think that's what, what motivates their love for their neighbors and their cities is, is knowing who their King is ultimately. Well, and how can people follow you? Know, like keep up with what you're doing at the center for public house theology. 
So the best thing to do is just to either follow us on social media. We're just House Church Theology on all the different platforms. But we also, we have a website. Um, it's just housechurchtheology.com. We have um, a lot of standalone essays and articles there that we've translated from Chinese pastors. And you can get on our mailing list there. We have so much that we are rolling out in the coming years. Um, we're new. We're only like two years old, technically. <laughs> hey, we're the Yay! same age. We're the same age. We're going to eat together, Nana. That's the plan. Um, so yeah, we're we're small and young, but um, we have a lot going on. And we probably, if you know, if you get this book and you read it, or if this conversation is inspiring, I would definitely check out the other stuff with we've got and follow us because we're looking at probably having at least one book coming out every year for a long while. So. Well, it's an important work. That's for sure. Because I, I know God is doing a work there and I know he's using that work to touch people around the world. And as, as we have said, we're new the West. Part of that key is helping us to engage one another across our cultural barriers to encourage one another to fulfill the purpose and mission of God that he has for us where we're at. So thank you for your time and thank you for this book. I would recommend those who haven't got it yet. It just came out. I mean, as we're doing this, we're recording this in December. It'll be released in January, I believe, but just came out in December. So this is a brand new book and a lot of good reviews already. People coming out and tremendously encouraged and challenged by it. But I would recommend Hannah. Thank you for coming on Apollo. Thank Water. you so much for having me. The faith of Wang Yi and people like him are greatly encouraging to me. And I hope they're encouraging to you too. I see a time coming, a time when Christians in the West are going to have to make decisions. Are we willing to stand up the way the church in places like China has? Not belligerently, not being spiteful or condescending, but because we believe, like Wang Yi, that the gospel is the best thing for the city and the culture around us. The twin sins in those situations are refusing to stand on the one hand, which means weakly accepting and being unwilling to give up our comforts. Or, on the other hand, we can stand up, and it might be not because we care, but out of defiance and honestly mean-spiritedness. We're not willing to give in. And neither of those responses is okay. Neither is like Christ. And pastors like Wang Yi, the church in places like China, serve as examples to us here in the West. They show us and give us a model of what it looks like to stand in the modern world. As Hannah said, these are not superhero Christians. They are normal, everyday people like you and me. They have the same concerns. They have families. They have children. They have jobs. They have to pay the bills. They have to put food on the table. They have to face their friends and their relatives. They have to go out in public. They have to go to schools. And yet, they are people who are listening to the Spirit's call to live as disciples of Jesus, to pursue Christ's mission in their lives in the here and now, just like us. Yes, their culture and circumstances are different than ours, but perhaps not as different as it would seem. 
I highly encourage you to get the book, Faithful Disobedience. I guarantee you it will be encouraging and challenging. I know it was to me. If this episode has watered your faith, please pass it on to others, share it, go to whatever platform you subscribe and listen to this podcast to and leave us a review. That helps to get out to a lot more other people. And we are very grateful to see our ministry expand and transform the hearts and minds of people all over the world. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for making this dream a reality. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody.